Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for another edition of the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. We now continue with part three of the interview with James Sibenius on Dr. Kissinger's lessons on negotiation and deal making at the highest levels. The third part of your book, you talk about uh, zooming in, um, specifically starting off with reading counterparts. Kissinger essentially believed in understanding the individuals, his, the individual counterparts he was dealing with in both their cultural and political contexts. You say that there are some stereotypes here, but Kissinger felt the need to understand each individual differently. You know, for example, if you view that the Chinese negotiate in a certain way, um, there's different, there's various counterparts. There's the chairman, Mao Zedong, there's a, a premier, Cho Anlai. Could you take us through Kissinger's perspective um, on this? You know, it was a almost ironic moment because in my capacity as a professor at Harvard Business School, who teaches by the case method and our case studies all come from careful time in the field with the people who are actually doing what it is that we're studying and then come back with case studies where we put the students in the protagonist's shoes and get them to make the difficult decisions and so forth. And it hadn't been too long before we interviewed Dr. Kissinger here at, at Harvard when I had been writing a case study of a contract manufacturing negotiation in Shenzhen, commercial part of China, not too far from Hong Kong. And I remember people would ask me, how do you, you know, what's the advice you'd have for negotiating with the Chinese, quote unquote. Uh, and I'd written a bunch of case studies on just that topic, although mostly private sector. And then we had Dr. Kissinger here and I asked him early in our interviews, I said, so what advice would you have for negotiating with the Chinese? And he paused, as he often does before answering a question, and essentially began by saying, when I was dealing with Chairman Mao, and I must say the contrast between a contract manufacturing transaction in Shenzhen versus when I was dealing with Chairman Mao was a striking contrast for this, uh, the, the difference among these things. But what was intriguing to me is exactly what you say, that while Kissinger looked at significant differences, say, between, quote unquote, the Chinese style and the Soviet style of negotiation, which in broad strokes, he saw major differences. But right away, in talking about Chairman Mao, he saw the kind of the philosopher, the visionary, the strategic, you know, big think player and so forth. And that was really different from Zhou Enlai. And he saw there some overlap with a strategic thinker, but very much the administrator and the, you know, the executor of Chinese policies. And Deng Xiaoping, again, very different and, you know, much earthier, almost more stereotypically American in his, you know, his directness. And Kissinger was at pains to say, you don't want to stereotype. You really need to understand each of these people in their context and very quickly differentiated among those. As he did between, say, Brezhnev and Kosygin and Dobrynin in the Soviet Union, between Yitzhak Rabin and Golda Meir uh, in Israel, Anwar Sadat and Assad and, and others. And in fact, one of the things that I found really surprising in looking into these negotiations was the depth of his focus on individuals their experiences, their history, their context, what made them tick, their areas of strength and vulnerability and places where someone might appeal to them effectively. And he was really a student of people 
in that regard. And frankly, my first thought about Kissinger before getting into this very deeply was much more the sort of geopolitical grandmaster on a global chessboard kind of moving the pieces. And I think he was that in many respects. But he was also very, very focused on individual people. You could see this either as, as highly sort of devilishly manipulative as some of Kissinger's antagonists, like his Harvard colleague Stanley Hoffman thought, or you could see it as simply really effective. But there's no question in my mind that his insight into people was cultivated and deep. He wanted not to stereotype individuals within a setting, but he also really wanted to understand the political context in which they made decisions. And so an Israeli decision, you know, you needed to understand both the Israeli historical experience, the structure of the Knesset, the way that the Israeli cabinet worked. I think Kissinger acknowledged a failure to have such an understanding in one of his negotiations with the Japanese, where thinking of the prime minister in almost U.S. presidential terms, when the prime minister is a product of consensus and really only has a role to build consensus and can't as independently make claims or otherwise. Kissinger talked about the decision-making process, the political culture, as well as the individual. That was key in his assessments of how he might move this or that person. You know, if you read through the portrait of the individuals, some of which we took great pains to see what he had written before he negotiated with them, as opposed to many years later in crafting his memoirs. And it was a consistent focus that people with whom we spoke who'd worked with Kissinger constantly indicated just how strongly the, the interpersonal was. And if you think what a sharp contrast that is to how I was describing the conceptualization of what I saw in his approaches in the 73 Middle East War or the Paris or, or the Southern African negotiations, they almost feel like they're happening on different levels, and hence the zooming out and zooming in. In Chapter 11, you discuss the fine art of wordsmithing in diplomacy when dealing with counterparts. It's a particular art called constructive ambiguity, and this became um, particularly useful during the drafting of the Shanghai communique at the end of uh, the historic trip to China in 1972. The two countries in particular had to break an impasse on the status of Taiwan, but they wanted to do more than just agree to disagree. Can you explain uh, in this case what constructive ambiguity is and how was it used in this case? Constructive ambiguity, like credibility, has been one of those, those phrases that's been associated with Kissinger, probably like shuttle diplomacy, that are kind of trademarks. Constructive ambiguity is the art of crafting agreements that permit people to go forward that they would like to do. It can't explicitly express because of either domestic constituency reasons or for their own self-image or otherwise. Because you're, you're right. It was intriguing because during the negotiations over the opening to China, the thorniest issue really was the status of Taiwan. It wasn't so much the, the Vietnam talks or the Vietnam War, which was certainly important as China backed Vietnam. But the status of Taiwan, which claimed to be the legitimate government of the whole of China, you know, and at the same time, the People's Republic of China claimed that, you know, Taiwan was merely a rebellious province of the larger entity. And Kissinger faced this negotiating challenge. You know, he... They needed a sort of a formula to acknowledge the unity of China, which was one point in which the Taiwanese and the mainland Chinese agreed without actually supporting the claim of either. And, you know, there were deeper reasons why the Chinese 
wanted the U.S. as a counterweight to the Soviets, but they couldn't override this other consideration. You know, and, and this issue, these seemingly incompatible claims between the two, uh, between the two sides, which there had been over 160 U.S.-Chinese meetings, many of them in, in Warsaw and Poland, and they just got nowhere. They, they hit this issue, and it was just hit a wall. And Kissinger modified a formula that had been around in the 50s and had more or less been forgotten, but there's this elegantly ambiguous formula. It was wordsmithing, and what, what he said, I'm not going to get these words exactly right, but he said, the United States acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Straits maintain that there is but one China. The United States government does not challenge that position. I don't know if those are exact words, but it's essentially that. And if you think about it, that permits each side to maintain what are incompatible positions and the areas of, of mutually valuable cooperation to go forward. And Kissinger was really a master of this. And people who don't understand negotiation might say, oh, that's just words. But oftentimes words or the failure to come up with effective words are major stumbling blocks or complete, um, or complete barriers to, to reaching agreement. The positive side is if something like this, like the Shanghai Declaration, lets the U.S. and the Chinese begin to develop a relationship and get closer and so forth, then you may have the basis for a more explicit set of agreements, which the U.S. did when they later you know, established diplomatic relations with and formally recognized the Chinese. Constructive ambiguity can be very helpful. The downside of constructive ambiguity is if you're just papering over fundamental disagreements that are going to blow up the deal. And so sometimes people will find formulations that let things go forward, but there's no prospect, no meaningful prospect of things getting better. And then you've essentially, you might have delayed things, which could have been an objective, but, um, but you may be creating worse problems down the road. So there's a fine line between constructive ambiguity that lets things go forward and, uh, you know, what doesn't. You saw Kissinger do this in lots and lots and lots of times, sometimes just face-saving. So he would describe things in, in somewhat different terms. So, for example, between the Egyptians and the Israelis, the Israelis would describe their negotiations as direct, and the Egyptians didn't want to acknowledge that they were directly dealing with the Israelis, so there'd be somebody else in the room. And so the Egyptians would describe the interaction as indirect. And Kissinger was very happy to just kind of let that stand. You know, one of the things that in our interviews with George Shultz, um, he said to me something that I think is, is very wise. He said, it's amazing what people will often do as the result of a negotiation if you don't force them to agree to do it. <laughs> in other words, sometimes the act of explicitly agreeing create such obstacles whereby you could actually just do it and get the result but not agree to do it. And this is where constructive ambiguity sort of shades into tacit bargaining. But there are any number of examples of this. You know, talk about zooming in, you're precisely to the, the sort of wordsmithing piece of the story. But there were, there were a, lot of, uh, a lot of cases of that that we ran across in his negotiations. A final question, um, and we're, we're still zooming in here. Kissinger also believed in secrecy during negotiations. Nixon also believed in this, the importance of them. We see this both, we see this a lot in the Chinese, um, in the, in the uh, China rapprochement, uh, which we discussed a little earlier. You discuss some plus and minuses uh, in the book regarding the, uh, 
the tactic of secrecy. Can, can you touch upon that a little bit? I think just the predilections of both President Nixon and, and Kissinger was, they tended to be pretty secretive just by nature. It gave them more control over things and so forth. It also meant that if, for example, with the Chinese negotiation, had that become public, there would have been a domestic backlash, allies would have weighed in. The chances of being able to make it go forward were probably very, very small. It needed to be almost a fait accompli. At the same time, if you're carrying out secret negotiations, allies don't know about it, and they can be very offended by being cut out. Bureaucrats don't know about it, and that may be just a bureaucratic problem, but in many cases, especially in technical negotiations, as those happened in the SALT II negotiations, strategic arms limitation talks, they're very, very technical issues. And a secret negotiation which cuts out a lot of the, a lot of the technically skilled players may miss some really important technical points. And then there's kind of a suspicion that grew, and Kissinger acknowledged this later, that if his negotiations were heavily secret often, as they were, the negotiations to open up China were, were secret. There were secret talks in the Paris peace talks between him and Li Dakto while public talks were going on that were essentially not very meaningful. Uh, in dealing with the Soviet Union, he and Anatoly Dobrynin had something they called the channel, which was a, a private way that they could discuss things quite separately from the more, more overt diplomatic channels. Similarly, in the Middle East, he had uh, secret talks. The secrecy does enable you to exert a lot more control and keep enemies at bay and prevent backlashes. But after a while, what starts to happen is the entities that do have a lot of expertise and do control constituencies and others begin to suspect that whatever is happening publicly is meaningless and somewhere else the real negotiations are going on. And then people begin to sabotage and to, you know, set things up. And Kissinger seemed quite ambivalent later about whether the kind of secrecy that he engaged in was ultimately something that would be sustainable. And he and Richard Nixon, I think, had a tendency be, being quite distrustful of the bureaucracy to um, centralize things in the White House. Kissinger himself was immensely capable intellectually, and he had a small team that were very, very talented. So this could work, but it certainly had um, some significant downsides. And it also, well, the diplomats, you know, I documented, you know, back to the, well, probably times immemorial, but back to the 16th and 17th century, there was always a sense that much of diplomacy had to be secret. Nevertheless, it kind of runs against democratic norms. You know, President Wilson talked about open covenants openly arrived at. And that, to my ears, and I think to most negotiation specialists, sounds very naive because open negotiations just attract all sorts of grandstanding and constituency intervention and so forth. But when there's secret talks and secret deals, you've got a, a real democratic problem. So I think open agreements secretly arrived at is not a bad way of thinking about it. But the secrecy, how widely the, the shadow of secrecy extends, is it just you and the president and a couple of aides is it an overall, you know, a negotiating team carefully selected? There are a lot of pluses and a lot of minuses to secrecy, and I think Kissinger's experience underscores that. I would say 
there's no question about the value of secrecy in uh, on the Chinese situation. It gets a little more complicated when you look at the others, but there's no doubt that a secret channel that permits open exploration and testing of things without a lot of outside intervention could be helpful, but it could get overdone and have negative consequences. You can also get whipsawed, by the way, as the U.S. did in the Vietnam talks, where something would be said or an understanding would be reached in secret, in the secret talks. And publicly, in the public talks, the North Vietnamese would be lambasting the U.S. for not doing something that the U.S. said it would do in the secret talks. But the U.S. felt that it couldn't say anything about it because it would blow the cover of the secret talks, which were thought to be of great value. And this kind of thing, these kinds of games would happen all the time. So I think reading the book and and then meditating on secrecy versus um, openness in negotiation, it really leads to a much more sophisticated conception of, uh, of, of the process. What do you hope um, readers get from this book? I hope that people reading the book see the value of a strategic approach, long-term, a kind of wide-angle lens, direct and indirect plans, you know, for accomplishing your goals, adaptability and credibility. That sort of strategic approach, I think, is, is really important. And zooming out to such a strategic approach, I think, is, is key. But zooming in to interpersonal effectiveness Recognizing its value and cultivating that is something that really effective negotiators can learn a lot from. I think sometimes people tend to think of force and negotiation or no deal versus a deal as almost opposite poles. But reading through and analyzing Kissinger suggests a more realistic approach where you're always looking at the deal, no deal balance and how they, how they influence each other. Kissinger was a master in situations that seemed weak of looking away from the table to change the game, the parties that were involved, the issues, the no-deal options, such that when he was focused on his, his real target, he would have a much, much better shot at achieving it, And rather than treating an a negotiation kind of independently. We haven't talked about it much, but I think when people read some of these cases, the capacity to negotiate when there are multiple parties is interesting. So I would say, you know, the sort of zooming out, zooming in, the strategic approach, holistic approach, being willing to change the game, and how to do that when there are a number of different parties internally and externally, these are all things that I think carry over from the diplomacy of the 1970s to business, financial, public policy, as well as diplomatic negotiations of today. That's the spirit in which we wrote the book. And frankly, I was really pleased that in sharing the book with a number of people, I, I was not surprised, for example, that Jim Baker, um, a terrifically effective Secretary of State and a great negotiator, found it to be useful. That a couple of private sector people, Steve Schwartzman at the Blackstone Group, who found the book exciting and very valuable for business people, and John Chambers in the tech sector, who was longtime head of Cisco, as well as, you know, the probably the standard biography to this stage of Henry Kissinger is by Walter Isaacson, and it's arguably a fairly critical biography. Um, and Isaacson, you know, looked at the book and, you know, found it to have a lot of lessons. We were really not trying to say, is Henry Kissinger a saint or a sinner? But instead, what can we learn from him? If people feel like they can learn and find value for their own challenging negotiations in a close examination of these negotiations, then I think it will have been, uh, it will have been a real success. That concludes part three of the interview with James Sebenius on Dr. Kissinger's negotiation strategy.
I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. You've been listening to another edition of the Nixon Now Podcast. Please stay tuned for our upcoming episodes at nixonfoundation.org.